Good evening. Last week on the History of Medicine, we detailed the early life of Alec Fleming and the initial discovery of penicillin, right up to World War II. If you'll recall, Fleming actually lost interest in penicillin, and it was barely a blip on the scientific record. But this week, we'll continue the story of how penicillin became the miracle drug of its time. The year is 1939. World War II is now in full swing, and the German war machine has conquered most of Western Europe. Yet, in the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology at Oxford University, experiments continued on. This specific lab had decided to pick off where Fleming had left off years ago, and try to make something of penicillin. They saw a vast potential that it seemed Fleming himself even had already given up on. The first step to making something of penicillin was to make more penicillin, a problem that Fleming had already encountered. Enter Norman Heatley. Heatley knew that you could grow penicillin in auger, which is, uh basically a mixture that you usually use to grow bacteria or other microorganisms, but it didn't grow very well in auger. So he tried to fertilize it with all kinds of other stuff, like nitrates, salts, sugars, glycerol, and even meat, which sounds pretty gross. He added oxygen, CO2, uh, none of that really seemed to work, but he did figure out that brewer's yeast would cut down the growth time by about half. He experimented with all of this stuff, and once he figured out the optimal way to harvest penicillin, Heatley then still had to figure out a way to gauge its strength. As such, he pioneered a unit which he called the Oxford, named of course for the school where the research took place, which was measured by seeing how much bacteria in a petri dish could be cleared of bacteria with the compound being measured. At this point, the lab began to have significant budgetary problems. You'd think that the potential of penicillin would have made it a big deal, but with a literal world war ramping up, finding money was even more difficult than before. No one was concerned about some research lab's funding when the entire country of England was at stake. Howard Florey, the director of the Dunn Lab, and a brilliant scientist in his own right, begged for money anywhere that he could find it, asking just for even just a couple hundred pounds, and still he was refused. At one point, Flory told his colleague, Ernst Chain, to stop ordering literally everything, even something as basic as glassware, for lack of funds. Luckily, they received a grant from the Rockefeller campaign over in the U.S., which just barely kept them afloat. Their next step was purification and stabilization of penicillin. Heatley had figured out how to make large quantities of penicillin, but they now need to extract the active ingredient for use, not just have a bunch of fungus lying around, and they need to make sure that it could last. Luckily, Heatley wasn't done quite yet. His first idea was to chemically stabilize the compound. He tried various temperatures and pH levels, adding alkali and bases and salts to neutralize the mixture. His second idea, which he called, quote, laughably simple, was a, uh, relatively simple recipe. So you take some mold juice, you filter it through silk, mix in ether, then alkaline salts, dissolve it in water, and then filter it again. No problem, right? This yielded a nice concentrated solution of penicillin that was stable for about 11 days, which is a lot better than they had before. It had a record purity of about 0.02%, which I know sounds pretty bad, but does beat out Fleming's record by quite a bit, since his best was only about 0.0001%. From there, the baton gets passed to Ernst Chain, another brilliant scientist at the Dunn Lab. Chain was a piano prodigy before getting into science, which gave him fantastic hand-eye coordination, of great benefit for making precise measurements and uh, any sort of experimentation in general, really. Chain directed one of his colleagues, John Barnes, to inject the entire stock of penicillin they had into two mice. 
The idea was to test if it was safe, and the mice tolerated it very well, which at least kind of initially indicated that it was safe. Even better, they actually found that the extract was excreted as urine. Uh, apparently the urine came out almost as brown as the injected compound itself, and it still worked as an antibiotic. Which means that if you really need to, you could actually harvest the antibiotic from urine after it was used. Definitely gross, but possibly worth the trouble if they really needed to recycle it. On May 25th, 1940, two months after Chain's first test, Heatley realized that he had put his underwear on backwards. I kid you not. Apparently, Heatley considered that a lucky omen, and apparently it was, since later that day, Flory infected eight mice with Streptococcus, a nasty bacteria that causes a whole lot of diseases, and then four of the mice were given penicillin, and the other four were left as the control group. By the next morning, all four of the control group had died, but all four mice treated with penicillin had lived. As such, their first animal test was a great success, but there was still more testing to be done, and that would require more production. Every single pharmaceutical company that they approached turned them down, and so the job fell once again to our friend Heatley. Heatley's first challenge was finding some properly sized vessels for growing a bunch of mold. If you'll recall, though, the Dunn lab is basically broke at this point. Uh, to the point where Flory actually had the elevator shut off in order to save a measly 25 pounds per year. As such, Heatley became a part-time thief. I'm not kidding. He went around to the kitchens around the Dunn Lab and he stole pie trays and baking dishes. Sixteen bedpans went missing in the nearby Radcliffe Infirmary. Heatley's larceny, however, would pay off. He eventually built a very crude but functional machine composed of an array of tubes and bottles, which mixed ether with penicillin, added acid, and then separated the concentrated broth. It's really janky, and it's comprised of what appears to be wood boards and whatever bottles and piping Heatley could find, and frankly, I love it. I've attached a link to a photo in the show description, so take a look for yourself. In August 1940, Fleming opened a copy of The Lancet, a major medical journal in England, and was surprised to find a paper entitled Penicillin as a Chemotherapeutic Agent, conducted by seven scientists working at Oxford, most prominently Ernst Chain, Howard Florey, and Norman Heatley. Fleming showed up at Oxford just a few days later, saying, quote, I have come to see what you have been doing with my old penicillin. This was much to the surprise of Ernst Chain, who apparently was under the impression that Fleming had actually died some time ago, since the original research had taken place about a decade before at this point. Keep in mind that World War II is still raging, and at this time the threat of invasions by the Nazis was very real to the British. Development of penicillin was seen as having potential massive war usage by the lab, but not yet by everybody else, and the lab members treated this as an incredibly important potential technology. Four of the researchers actually smeared samples of the penicillium fungus on their suits, so that if they had to escape the island in case of Nazi invasion, they could continue their research elsewhere. In preparation for clinical trials, the team improvised all kinds of equipment, and they hired six women to mass-produce penicillin as best as could be done with the war shortages. Finally, in 1941, clinical trials began. First, they tested its toxicity in a woman dying of breast cancer. Elva Uckers, who agreed to take the possibly dangerous dose. She reported that besides a kind of gross, musty taste in her mouth, and some shivering, that she had no other ill effects. From there, they moved on to other septic patients. A policeman dying of a body-wide infection was the first subject. 
By the time they had gotten to him, he was already on the brink of death. They began treatment with penicillin. Although penicillin was in such short supply, they purified it from the patient's urine for reuse. Flory liked to quip that, quote, Penicillin was discovered at St. Mary's Hospital, extracted at Oxford, and purified by passing through the Oxford Constabulatory. Basically, he made a pee joke, as all great scientists must. After five days, the patient was significantly better, but unfortunately they ran out of penicillin, and he unfortunately relapsed with his infection and passed away a few days later. However, the lesson was learned. They did not have quite enough penicillin on hand to treat systemic infections. Next trials focused on localized infections instead, which would require a lot less penicillin, treating just a small part of the body. A large cast of patients deemed beyond hope with the Times technology were quickly healed, and another, pu- and another paper was soon published in The Lancet and widely praised. However, Flory and Heatley had been unable to find a company to help mass-produce penicillin. They decided instead to bring the technology to the United States, which at this point is still neutral in World War II and not officially part of the war. They took three months to plan the trip, and you'll notice I only mentioned Florian Heatley, because they actually excluded Chain from the plans. Chain only found out about the plan, and that his colleagues were leaving without him when he saw their packed bags. What comes next sounds like it comes straight out of a spy movie. There were no direct flights to the U.S. from Britain, and so the two men were driven south to the bottom tip of England, and then they flew to Portugal. They stayed there for three or four days before they finally took a flight first to Azores, then to Bermuda, and then finally after all of that to New York. Initially, they struggled to find companies to commit to further production and research, but through some personal connections of Flory, they finally got some government officials to prioritize their research, even reaching the ear of Franklin Roosevelt himself. With the advent of Pearl Harbor and the U.S. joining the war, penicillin finally was given some extra attention. Various universities, pharmaceutical companies, and the government formed a massive collaborative effort to ramp up penicillin production. And so, us Americans did start manufacturing penicillin. And we figured out a lot of the ways to scale it up, but we selfishly kept most of it, since penicillin, as it turns out, is incredibly useful and in really short supply. Kind of a crappy move on our part, but it did convince British pharmaceutical companies to finally step up. It helped, too, that Fleming made a case to the English government for the potential use of penicillin, and with official support, production of penicillin just barely began to meet some of the massive needs of the war. The new drug's tests in wartime went phenomenally. Men who would have once had limbs amputated due to infection regained full use of them instead. The horrors of war were not only limited to combat. Gonorrhea, the sexually transmitted disease, was actually so widespread that it was causing more casualties than enemy forces in World War II. But now with penicillin, gonorrhea could be cured within 12 hours of injection. Initially, the governments of the Allies actually tried to keep penicillin a secret from the public, so as to make sure that production would be adequate for wartime use. Even with American pharmaceutical companies wrapping up production, if civilians became aware of the new drug, there was almost sure to be a severe shortage with new demand. This unfortunately fell apart in 1942, when a massive fire broke out in a Boston nightclub. Hundreds of victims arrived with severe burns at the hospital, which are often susceptible to infections, and so for the first time, penicillin was prepared for civilian use. As word of the new drug grew, so too did demand, and suddenly there was an enormous pressure to produce more penicillin for patients and for profit. American pharmaceutical firms contracted with the government and went all out. 
In the first five months of 1943, the United States produced only 400 million units of penicillin, which sounds like a lot, but for reference, about 2 million units are needed to treat a single staph infection. Just a few months later, in 1944, penicillin production was at about 100 billion units per month, enough to treat some 50,000 of those aforementioned staph infections. Although the United States was handling most of the penicillin production, Britain was still making important research contributions. Most notably, Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin, an expert in crystallography and Britain's only female Nobel laureate to this day, discovered the crystal structure of penicillin. She used the absolute cutting edge in computation at the time, which was punch card calculators being used by the Royal Navy and the Air Force. And she calculated the atomic positions based on how penicillin reacted with other agents. The computation was actually so expensive that the Medical Research Council thought that there had been a mistake in her bill, which she then assured them was accurate. But it paid off. Hodgkin revealed the beta-lactam ring, which is where this class of drugs that includes penicillin gets its name from. A beta-lactam ring is a square formed by three carbons connected to an oxygen and a nitrogen, which are also connected. Uh, that's probably a bit hard to comprehend in words, so I've placed a photo in the description. Take a look if you're a little more curious about how penicillin looks. This weird structure is constantly under strain, which is what makes penicillin so frustratingly unstable, as Fleming found out, but also makes it work. The strain meant that the bond between the carbon and the nitrogen atoms would often break, and then that would attach to a vital enzyme used by bacteria when reproducing. As such, when those bacteria are affected by penicillin, they get stuck in an elongation phase of reproducing, where they elongate and elongate and elongate, but they never split until finally the bacteria explodes. Hodgkin's contribution was major, and she'll come up again later since she discovers the structure of a few other important things, like insulin and vitamin B12. She was also well-liked, with a colleague saying, quote, She radiated love for chemistry, her friends, her students, her crystals, and her college. There was a magic about her person. She had no enemies, not even amongst those whose scientific theories she demolished, or whose political views she opposed. Unquote. Knowing the structure helped further other research, and undoubtedly penicillin was to be a factor in the eventual Allied victory. Basically, Hodgkin was awesome, and she deserves a lot of credit in making penicillin as big as it became, especially considering the era and her gender. After the war, a sort of penicillin mania developed, with people starting to see it as a cure-all for everything. A large number of ideas sprouted, some maybe with some merit to them, and a lot of them without. Some examples include penicillin toothpaste to prevent cavities, penicillin lipstick for clean kisses, belief spread that it could even restore color to gray hair or, or fix baldness. The more educated people found this pretty amusing, with one of Fleming's colleagues suggesting a slogan for the penicillin lipstick. Quote, kiss whom you like, when you like, how you like, and avoid all consequences except matrimony. As part of the mania, the media ate up the rags-to-riches story of Fleming. It began when, in August 1942, the Times of London published a brief editorial promoting a greater degree of public investment in penicillin. Almroth Wright, who, if you'll remember, was Fleming's boss and mentor, actually sent in a letter requesting that Fleming receive the credit. The newspapers obliged, and this did not go unnoticed by Flory and his cohorts, who were reasonably angry, but it was already too late. Scottish papers quickly lay claim to Fleming through his heritage, and Irish papers through that of his wife. The good news was desperately needed in the dark times of war, especially considering how poorly the war was going at the moment. 
As you might guess, Fleming was not particularly happy to be a public darling, but the media coverage continued, and the Oxford team was largely left out of the public narrative, much to their chagrin. Although not very apparent to the public at large, it was to be a source of tension between the Oxford team and Fleming from here on out. Fleming's popularity extended even beyond the ocean to the United States. In 1945, he actually went on tour. He gave lectures in the U.S. and was presented with sums of money, which he donated towards encouraging up-and-coming researchers. He met and was photographed with the first patient stateside, who was treated with penicillin. He referred to her as, quote, my patient, which apparently irked the Oxford team. A friend of him actually coached him through dealing with the ever-present media, and although Fleming was continually showered with praise and rewards, he maintained his humble demeanor. His friend is quoted as saying that Fleming was, quote, one of the most humble men I have ever met. He often used to say, I wonder why it is that they make such a fuss of me. Fleming and Flory were actually both knighted, although the media, as per usual, paid more attention to Fleming. Fleming accrues a boatload of honorary degrees, memberships, and titles. He meets the Pope, who presented him with a papal medal. Fleming, too, had a gift for Pope Pius, a homegrown mounted specimen of the penicillin fungus. These would actually become kind of a trademark gift of his, a retort to the piles of gifts he would receive, which he felt awkward receiving with nothing to give back. In 1945, Fleming, along with Flory and Chain, are awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine, arguably his crowning achievement. This was made an even bigger deal by the fact that a Nobel had not been issued since the breakout of World War II, so widespread was the violence. It seems fitting that one of the biggest discoveries of the 20th century would be given the first Nobel Prize after the end of the war. Over the next couple decades, Fleming's touring schedule was ridiculous. For example, in 1946, he went to Italy, France, and Brazil. In 1947, Italy again. 1948, he goes to Spain. 1949, returns him to Italy and the United States. 1950, sends him to the U.S., Brazil, Italy, Belgium, and Sweden. 1951, takes Fleming to Pakistan. In 1952, he goes to Belgium, Switzerland, and Greece. The list goes on and on. Although, as you can kind of guess from his personality, he did not particularly enjoy many of the formal activities, he powered through, understanding that he was also acting as a diplomat and ambassador for England. His friend commented that he was, quote, at his best at informal gatherings. Formality and protocol made him uneasy. Despite his misgivings, Fleming captivated his audiences. The editor of the British Medical Journal described him thus, quote, Modest to a point of shyness, by no means an orator on public occasions, he impressed those he met with his simplicity and essential humility. With it all was a naive schoolboy delight in simple pleasures, unquote. This public career more or less continued for the rest of his life, with tours and speeches and honorary degrees and lectures all over the world. In 1955, March 10th, Fleming felt the pain in his chest and he vomited. He suddenly passed away from a coronary thrombosis. Condolences and mourning were global. A day of national mourning was declared by the Dominican Republic. Flags in Greece were flown at half-mast, and in Spain, flowers were laid in tribute to him. The tributes were absolutely deserved, but I also want to highlight the others that were often left out of the story. Fleming is the name most associated with penicillin. It's certainly true that he deserves credit for the original discovery, stumbling upon some mold that stopped bacteria, which no one else took an interest in. The media attention later in his life certainly helped push this perception, and reading his biographies, I found him to be a charming and unusual figure. 
but let's not forget the contributions of the Oxford team. Personally, I had no idea before any of this research that there had been any others with major contributions, but without them, penicillin would probably never have found widespread clinical use, and definitely not at the crucial moment that it did in World War II. Discovering compounds is vital, but making them mass-producible is just as important. As such, Howard Florey, Norman Heatley, and Ernst Chain. I hope you may remember their names and credit them too with bringing penicillin to true use. On top of that, there's also Dorothy Hodgkin, who, if you'll remember, discovered the actual structure of penicillin, which fueled research and development of that entire class of drugs, beta-lactams. Remember her name too, if you can. The effects of penicillin cannot be understated. Thousands of diseases that previously to this had no cures suddenly became treatable. The penicillin mania that followed its discovery was honestly deserved. With new protection against infection, previously impossible surgeries and procedures became feasible to do safely for the first time. Finally, it opened the door for other antibiotics to be discovered, which we'll get around to next week. We'll start with the aminoglycosides in the lab of one Selman A. Waxman. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Feel free always to reach out, especially with feedback at our Facebook page and website, or my email, all listed in the description. If you have time, please leave me a review. If you tell me good things, great. If you tell me bad things, I'll work on fixing them. Thanks to Angie Lee for her logo, my friend Jojo Tang for editing, Muse Open for her theme music, and to you, my dear listener, for listening.